Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. I'm Marcos Molitsis. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast, The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. My co-host, my usual co-host, Carrie Eleveld, is out. But don't worry, she's okay. She'll be back next week. We're going to be excited to have her back. So to help me out today, we got Mark Sumner, who is a uh, senior writer at Daily Coast. He's a jack of all trades, master of all I'm not kidding. He knows everything. And if you've been watching and reading Daily Coast, you know that Mark has actually been one of the best writers on the issue of the coronavirus, of um, COVID. And uh, again, he is a master of all trades, let's just say that. And so he has been helping me anchor the Daily Coast coverage of the Ukrainian uh, defense of the Russian invasion. And, um, and it's we're going on four months. So we're going to have a conversation today about that. Mark, thank you so much for helping me out today. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to do things a little differently. Usually we have a guest that is an expert on the topic that we're talking about, and I get to do the interviewing part, and that's always fun and enjoyable. But um, today we're going to mix things up. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully it works out. But I'm going to be the guest, and Mark is going to be guiding the conversation and that discussion and keeping us on track and, and really uh, hopefully focusing on the stuff that I've been writing about, but also on the stuff that Mark has been writing about because we've been absolutely tearing it up. And, and I know this sounds a little arrogant and presumptuous maybe, but I think that our coverage at Daily Coast has been some of the best war coverage. And uh, in a lot of ways, it sort of even brings me back because Daily Coast rose to prominence because of my coverage of the Iraq war back in 2003. Seems like, like a lifetime ago. And uh, so this is a particular area of expertise of mine and, and I'd rather not be writing about it, to be honest, but here we are. And I'm glad that we're able to, to inform people in a way that I think is severely lacking in our English language, traditional media. So with that introduction out of the way and sort of that setup, I'm gonna let Mark now take over and you are now in charge of this podcast. All right, we'll see how this goes. But you know, you, you said uh, four months, but it's been about, about four weeks now that we <laughs> It uh, feels like four yeah, months. <laughs> it just feels like four months. But it's been about four weeks that, that we've been doing literally continuous coverage of, of events in Ukraine. And in, in some ways, it's the, the easiest war coverage in the world, right? Because we're just sitting here watching the feeds from the people that are actually boots on the ground over there. But, but, it, but it is kind of draining and, and it is something that goes on 24-7 to really try to get the story across. How much of that story has really been shaped by your own military experience that you had before starting Daily Codes? Yeah, that's a good question. How much of it has been informed? I, I would say that the vast majority of it has been informed. So I was always interested in military history, right? So I'd be the, I was like the 12-year-old kid with a big history of Guadalcanal, right? And, and I would not just read it once, I would read it five times. I was just absolutely fascinated by military history and started with World War II and then in the history of the Vietnam War. Then I got into the Nap uh, Napoleon Wars. And it was just something that was fun to read as an academic exercise as a teenager. I joined the army though, and there is a different way um, 
war and military matters look a lot different when you're on the ground and you're a grunt on the ground. So I was a, um, a 13 papa that is a multi, that is fire direction specialist for multiple launch rocket system, MLRS. Now, if you've been watching, if you've been covering, I mean, if you've been reading about the Russian invasion, MLRS might be something you've seen, right? And basically it's, it's that rocket artillery. It's these, these rocket launchers that launch barrages of rockets that can obliterate a whole city block. That's what I did. I was, I was fire direction for a platoon of MLRS, right? So there's a difference between looking at the map and seeing divisions and regiments and brigades moving on a map. It's a lot different when you're sitting there in the field, in the command post, and uh, in my case, in charge of three rocket launchers. And that meant not just telling them where to, where to fire, fire direction, which was the title of my job, my job title, but that was about 1% of my job. 99% of that, my job was making sure that, that those three rocket launchers in my vehicle, in two Humvees that were part of my platoon, that they had ammunition, that they had food, that they had mechanical parts, that they had medical supplies, that they had, uh, um, they had filters for their chemical uh, warfare gear. I mean, it was basically the bulk of my job was supply. And so you realize very early on that war isn't a mass of infantrymen with rifles and, and tankers and, and artillery people and airplanes um, shooting all at once. It's just a handful of people that actually pull any kind of trigger or, or pull any kind of push any kind of button. And the vast majority um, are in support. So in my unit, in my MLRS battery, which was three firing platoons, so nine launchers. Each launcher had a crew of three. So 27 soldiers pressed a button that fired anything. To support those nine launchers and 27 soldiers, we had about 300 soldiers and 54 other vehicles. So that was fuel trucks, that was ammo trucks, that was supply trucks, that was the armor, that was the medics, that was two trucks that were tows to pull us out of the mud, because you may see in, in Ukraine, you know how those mud you get stuck in the mud? You get stuck in mud and, uh, and a bunch of stuff that I, I can't even remember off the top of my head. So 54 vehicles supporting nine launchers. The math was about 15% press the button that fired, 85% supported. We saw that when coming into this, there were all those predictions. You know, when people were looking at the war before it started, there was like 100,000 guys on the ground. Now it's 150,000 guys. Now Russia has 190,000 guys lined up. And that sounds like a, a lot of people. But uh, like what you were just saying explains a lot about why that's not enough people to really accomplish the kind of goals that they had in Ukraine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is where on the ground knowledge of how this stuff works really informs my writing and it informed my writing about the Iraq war, right? People see 190,000 troops and they think 190,000 soldiers that are going to shoot stuff. With guns. Yeah. And there is a lot of talk, you know, now it's everybody's like, Things are so clever by saying amateurs talk uh, tactics, professionals talk logistics, right? Everybody thinks now they're like, you know, they're so hip and savvy to logistics. They haven't made the connection, though, that those logistics are tied to that 190,000 troops. That's not a separate category of people, right? And so one of the things that, that I've been very aware of or I've really been focusing on 
is there's been videos of like a car passing a column of, of um, armor or a column of artillery. And I count and I count. And time and time again, it's kind of amazing. 15% of the vehicles are actual combat vehicles. And then you have a long train of command and control and supply and fuel trucks and Jeeps and all this stuff that supports those firing vehicles. And so my experience actually is confirmed by what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine. Russia doesn't have a magical formula where they are, um, they're, uh, they're immune to the needs of logistics. And we even see that in their, in their, uh, in their mechanized infantry and armor groups, right? It, it all, you know, it's six to 800 men in one of their, it's BTG, battalion tactical groups. That's their unit of maneuver. Six to 800 men, hundred of them are mounted infantry that can, that can engage in, in, in action. Again, 15%, right? It's, it's that number. It's, there's this magical law. And I haven't seen anybody actually create the law of, of, of 15%, but somebody probably has in some military journals somewhere at West Point. So here's the thing then. So you look 190,000, what's 15% of that? You're looking about 25,000 combat troops. That's what Russia pulled into a country of 40 million people. And then... I mean, we can get it. Then they split them into four different axes, you know, from the south, from the right. north, from the northeast, and from the east. And then even those are split into over a dozen lines of attack, right? So you're talking about literally a couple hundred people. So I was doing the math yesterday. There is the southern prong came out of Kherson, out of Crimea. They took Kherson. It's the only city of any note that Russia has taken from Ukraine thus far. And they wanted to get to Odessa, which is a very critically important Black Sea port city has about a million people, not just important from an economic standpoint, but also culturally. It's, it's, a, it's a grand city, right? I mean, Putin definitely thinks this is, this is vintage Russia. And, but they have to get through this river, the Southern Bug. And to, there's only two crossings within, I don't know, about 50, 60 miles. One of them is uh, Mikhailiv, and the other one is, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. And this Mikhailiv is about a, half a million people. And Yesterday, there was a Ukrainian intelligence actually leaked battle documents from Russian troops in the area that were two weeks old. And so nothing, nothing that gave away the game, except that it told us what Russian units were in that area. And it turns out they had seven battalion tactical groups supposedly going to attack um, Mikhailiv. Seven battalion groups, that's 700 mounted infantry for a city of half a million, right? And you see this everywhere so i i'm i'm ready to, i haven't written this yet because i'm going to soon but i'm ready to posit that even if russia had perfect supply lines and logistics which they don't even if they did we'd be in the same place today come back again to this this btg the battle tactical group because russia went through quite an effort here just five to ten years ago to really reorganize their army around this concept that I saw a lot of magazine articles coming into this that was explaining to me how this was going to work, all these different... Yeah, actually, Mark, like, of- explain that, because it's actually kind of fascinating. <laughs> the, the pre-war fiction of Russian military superiority. You know, there, there was a popular mechanics article that actually posited something like exactly what we saw in Kyrgyzstan, where it was, here's Russia coming in to take a bridge, right? The drones go out front, 
you have your, your initial uh, scouting group that comes in, you have your tanks that come in and hold the position, you have your infantry that leapfrogs that position, and then you have the group that stays behind. They had it nicely choreographed, all these different forces and how they all work together. It's called but, combined arms, combined right. arms, because you're taking all these elements and it's like a, it's like a symphony. Yeah, but what, but what the article even pointed out was, and what this requires is a lot of, of experience and training at the sort of middle officer level, right? The generals, they may be brilliant, but to make this combined arms tactics work, you've got to have a lot of lieutenants on the ground that are capable of, of executing this. And Russia doesn't seem to have that. Yeah, it's even it's even worse than that. There, there's um, in the U.S. military there is the officer corps, lieutenants, captains, majors, right. all the way up to general, and then you have the non-commissioned officer corps, and that's the the sergeants all the way up to master sergeant and, and so on. Right. So the those are considered enlisted, um, the sergeant class. They are professional soldiers, but they're professional grunts. Their job is to carry out orders from officers. Officers are looking at the map. They're saying, take that position. Uh, you may have a lieutenant, the lowest ranking officer in an in right. infantry platoon, but really it's going to be the sergeants that are going to figure out how to take that. And they've been in the Army for you know, 10 to 20 years, and so they have that experience. And lieutenants know that they shut up. It's like you, the sergeant <laughs> is in charge. <laughs> and... And it doesn't take long. Like I said, lieutenants, once lieutenants are promoted to, uh, to captain, they're out. They're out of the field, right? They're sitting in a tent looking at maps at that point. Right. And so you have a professional class of, of soldiers who have, the, who have the knowledge and initiative how to, how, to, how, to, um, how to engage in these combat situations and how to, how to carry out these objectives. Russia doesn't have that. They, they don't have such a thing as NCOs, as sergeants, apparently. It's, it just boggles their mind, right? They have an officer corps, and then they have basically what are conscripts. They're like, you know, the dredges of Russian society. And they are, they are not, partic- there's no real investment in them. It's not considered to be an honorable profession. And so, and they're paid like crap. So basically, their life is one big grift, is what can they grift out of the supply closets, out of, out of, uh, out of their equipment, what fuel they can pilfer and sell for vodka. And so there's this sort of graph. And the way graph works, and Mark, you, you probably know this a lot better than I just historically, is it goes up the chain, right? right? So somebody's always grifting from somebody to the point where you have uh, oligarchs shipping non-functional weapons to military units, and sometimes probably non-existing weapons, right? It's just a spreadsheet. You can check off a box in a spreadsheet saying an armored vehicle has been delivered when none has. And then they pill for that money to buy their dachas in, in Italy and, and, and so on. So none of them expect actual real combat. So you only need to keep a few units actually combat ready. And the rest of them, you can just, you can just pill for. And you asked about the, the BTG, the, the um, Battalion Tactical Group. Russian units used to be... Um, organized into, I think it was regiment was the pre where the fighting unit wasn't a hundred. It was, it was, you know, six to 800 was the, the right. core in a division had a, a few of these, but it made it hard to grift. So what you do is you divide that into smaller BTGs and smaller bat, uh, battalion tactical groups. You keep one 
combat ready for when you need to ship them off to uh, Syria or, you know, Transnistria, the, you know, the breakaway regions in, right. in, in uh, those Central Asian uh, states that, that Russia sort of like um, dominates. You keep a couple of combat-ready troops, but the rest was just one big vehicle for Griff. So I think Putin thought that he had this weaponry. He thought he had these, these planes. I mean, where's his Air Force? He thought he had this massive Air Force, and none of it is operable. And, and one, of the most funniest, one of the funniest pictures I saw out of Ukraine was a captured uh, artillery gun. And there was a sign by one of the one of the uh, apparently is where you put in the antifreeze, and, it ba- and it, the right. sign literally says, "Do not Don't drink; it will drink kill you." Right? <laughs> <laughs> they're just drinking the lubricants. They're drink. They're selling this. I mean, this is literally what they do. So this stuff is is non functional. It's not maintained. I mean, there's been million threats on how their even their tires haven't been right. maintained. So they're they're you know they're breaking down in transition. So just top to bottom from their tactics, uh, the way the, the, the army is set up is, is designed for grift. They don't have professional soldiers like a NCO, a sergeant class that can lead competently and has bout, battlefield initiative. I mean, that's one of the other, they have an order. They're going to keep doing that order, even if it's not working over and over and over again. And, uh, and we've seen Ukrainians kind of going like, man, we are so lucky. They're, they're so bad at this because <laughs> they keep making the same mistakes over and over again because there's no initiative. It's not allowed. Well, you can see the evidence of that grift even in the hardware. I mean, it's not just that they're driving T-72 tanks that are literally some of them Vietnam era. But the, when we get pictures of the soldiers on the ground, they're not even carrying Kalashnikovs. What, about, what is it that they're carrying? They're carrying, you know, rifles that, that are... Not quite World War II surplus, but not long after that. Yeah, and, and you know, the AK-47 is the, the classic Soviet weapon of choice in almost every conflict in the world. You all know what it looks like. You've seen it, you know, because the Viet Cong had them in Vietnam and Saddam's you know, forces had them in, in, in Iraq. And like Al-Qaeda, they got AK-47s. ISIS, they got ak It is the weapon of choice because it is indestructible. Right. It is, it does... American weapons break down. They require a lot of maintenance. Uh, AK-47, you can, you can throw it into quicksand. By the way, I, not to digress, but quicksand was this thing I was really worried about as a kid, and apparently I shouldn't have been. Not really a thing. But anyway, yep. you could drag that AK-47 through quicksand, and it'll still fire. And there must be about 10 billion of them in the world. There has but to why be. Are, why aren't they in the hands of the Russian soldiers in Ukraine? These Russian soldiers have World War II, and it's a lot of their, their proxy forces, have World War II vintage helmets and single-shot rifles. It is, it is kind of amazing how poorly equipped they are, especially after Russia bragged about their you know, tens of billions of dollars of modernization money. And we literally haven't seen it. And I do wonder if, if how much Putin now realizes how much of a bubble is he in where they're trying to keep this from him? Or is he finally, is he on Twitter? Like we are <laughs> looking for the latest information and, and, and just losing his mind over what's happening on the ground. But um, even from the top attacking from four different locations was, was, was incredibly stupid, especially again, 190,000 troops in a country of 40 million, um, only 15% of them are combat forces. 
And you attack from the, you know, from the south and you attack Kiev, which is a city of three million with right. <laughs> what 10,000 troops. I mean, in what world? But it sort of speaks to Russia thinking that they were going to shock, shock and awe Ukraine into submission, that they were going to see Russians everywhere. Like we're surrounded by Russians. And that was going to be enough for them to throw their, their rifles. And you can even see it in those early videos, right, where, where Ukrainian civilians would go up right up to Russian soldiers. And there, was, there would be no security around their vehicles or anything. And he would, like, yell at them and tell them to put sunflowers in their pockets because they were going to end up dead in Ukraine. That doesn't happen anymore, Mark. You don't see those videos right. anymore. No, no. Exactly. And in fact, you're seeing things in Kyrgyzstan where, where the Russian soldiers are firing on civilians. Yeah. You know, but, but they but they were not prepared at all for what for the situation. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about the intelligence on, on two parts. One, clearly Putin was getting intelligence right up till the war started that was telling him that they were going to roll into Kiev, be able to install this puppet government, that people were going to welcome them and and that uh, you know they'd be everywhere, they'd have full control of the country and it'd be a matter of days. You know, one, so his, his intelligence was, was so wrong, so it'd be interesting to know why they were so wrong. And then the other thing is that the U.S. intelligence was so right going into this. Before, before the war, Biden is out there telling everybody that this is going to happen, and, and U.S. intelligence seemed to know almost to the day, uh, you know, almost to the, to the road, exactly what Putin's plans were. And yet they're telling everybody, and even inside the U.S., supposed foreign policy experts, military experts are sitting there poo-pooing what, what Biden is telling them. You know, why was it so hard to sell people in the U.S. and to sell people in Europe that this, this is what's going to happen? Look, it's obvious. Here's the buildup. Here's the intelligence. This is what he plans to do. I think those two questions are actually very much related. The reason that people didn't believe it was going to happen is because it was such a stupid idea <laughs> and the consequences. I mean, we, we may not have guessed that the Russian military was going to be this incompetent, but the realistic case scenarios still had a, a uh, Ukrainian government maintaining control of Western Ukraine while a fierce resistance movement was waged in the Eastern side that would, that would tie up Russia indefinitely while international sanctions would tank its economy at home. That was, that was kind of like the best case scenario. Um, I mean, I guess the best case scenario was, you know, the Taliban scenario, right? The government collapses overnight. And I guess that wasn't, that was possible. But I, people sort of understood this is, this is not Afghanistan. <laughs> this is, this is uh, these are people fighting for their own, you know, territory and, um, and they, they are equipped with weapons they know how to use. I mean, we can get into the failings in, in Afghanistan, but it also shows how American intelligence really is built for Europe. I mean, we, we, yeah. they, the CIA has nailed Europe. It had trouble in Afghanistan. It had trouble in, in, uh, in the Middle East. It has had some pretty high profile of failures. This is definitely not one of them. It, it's been ahead of the game every step of the way in a way that actually has to have Putin freaking out like oh, he's already clearly oh. paranoid so that second question is this was incredibly stupid of course he's not going to do it and you're even hearing russians saying like oh we never thought this was going to happen and you definitely see that in the military because they didn't maintain a military able to invade another country right again the military was one big grift 
So Putin invaded because he was he's 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 done that thing that all despotic dictators do is that they purge their circles of anybody with any hint of um, independence and contrarian voice. And so he was surrounded by a bunch of yes men. I mean, for example, his his um, defense minister, he is a he's like he's about a 20 year veteran of the Kremlin. Like he knows how to work the system better, better than anybody else. His predecessor actually tried to modernize Russian armed forces I and mean, like literally try to do it. He he was holding oligarchs accountable for the quality of the weaponry they were shipping to units. And so those oligarchs were outraged how dare <laughs> how dare exactly. this this who is this guy think he is telling us that we actually have to deliver what we're supposed to deliver to troops yep and uh and so that minister was sacked and uh they put this guy who's a yes man who was perfectly happy to let the oligarchs in russia's defense industry grift and deliver substandard materials. So you surround yourself with a group of people that are going to tell you what you want to hear. And Putin last year wrote this, this what, 3,000 word treatise on why Ukraine wasn't the real country and how its people were Russian and how Ukraine was a made up concept and nobody in Ukraine actually could possibly believe it because it was such a stupid idea. Who's going to then, you know, tell Putin like, uh, well, you know, oh, you know that thing you wrote? <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe it's not quite right. And maybe Ukrainians really don't want to be part of Russia. And the big irony about what's happening in, in Ukraine right now is that the war is being waged on the eastern side of the country, which is the Russian speaking side of the country. This is the side that had historically the most affinity towards Russia. And they've, um, I mean, that's, that's over. And, and, you know, public surveys that, that had a very divided Ukrainian public on whether to look eastward or look uh, towards the West, like that's gone. It's like 98% now want to look towards the West. Russia's hated. And, and Mariupol, you know, the city that's encircled and besieged and they're massacring civilians by the thousands with indiscriminate bombings is uh, it's a Russian speaking city right on the Russian border. I mean, th- these are not the parts of Ukraine that were supposed to hold out for linguistic cultural reasons. These were supposed to be their allies. And it is notable that at this time, one month into the war, not a single border city has fallen to Russia. So Sumy and, and uh, Kharkiv. Kharkiv and, and uh Northeast, uh, what's northeast of Kiev, um, Chernihiv, yep. um, and even Mariupol, they have not fallen. It, it would be like the U.S. unable to conquer and occupy Ciudad uh, Juarez down on the Mexican border. I mean, it just boggles the mind that that would be possible. I'm not talking about a guerrilla war afterwards. I mean, right. obviously, that would be, I mean, U.S. has plenty of experience in taking cities and then having to defend them against insurgencies. But they can't even walk in take it they can't even take these cities you look at a situation like sumi or kharkiv in russia literally has artillery based in russia in russia and they've got and they've got their the grad system their version of the kind of system that that you were commanding that is sitting there in russia firing on on kharkiv and and they yet still can't manage to to reduce the city to the point where they can actually get their forces into the city and this is why i say and I don't think I'm being very controversial. Um, 
This is why I say that that even if Russia had perfect logistics, because in those cities, in those sieges, they have perfect logistics. They don't even need logistics. Well, they don't yeah. need them. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're in Russia. They don't yeah. need them. And they can't, they haven't even surrounded those cities. Yeah. They haven't even managed to cut them off from, from, from Ukrainian supply lines. And it's, it's, Kharkiv's an example, too, where they've done so many things that just seem outrageously foolish. Let's, let's drop 200 guys on the Kharkiv airport, give them no support, and then just watch as Ukrainian forces set back and mop them up. And then maybe we'll do it again next week. It just doesn't seem to be any kind of coherent strategy for taking the city. Yeah, and that was that was a that was a sign of the first week, right? Because actually, the first major um, assault that we saw on video was in, an airborne landing in Hostomel, you know, Hostomel. west of of Kiev. And again, you know, people like me were like, "Is is the column from the north already there? I mean, how are they going to supply these people? This is this is not a thing that it's ever done. It's cruel." And, you, and getting back to what you said before, we had you had soldiers that were so uninformed about their situation they were inviting newsmen into the airport there at hostel to film them and two hours later all those guys are dead yeah and but then they tried it again and then they tried it again and then they tried it in kharkiv and then and this is where there's no like once the orders are out you just keep repeating them and it's fascinating seeing the evolution of the ukrainian resistance because on the first two weeks we basically saw um, small unit guerrilla hit and run tactics against armor or, uh, inf- you know, infantry, armored infantry vehicle. Right. So you'd see one burning tank and we'd be like, yeah, they got one tank. Right. They were avoiding major confrontation and and they would repulse any attacks into the cities. Right. Because Russia tried. But they were very small again because they only had a couple hundred, literally a couple hundred thinking that they were just going to waltz in and they would be greeted as liberators. So. The Russian resistance at first was, and as, as the anti-tank missiles were flowing in, the javelins and, and laws from the Brits, and um, that made for great videos and great motivation. And there was a lot of memes on, on, on social media of Saint Javelin, you know, right. a, a, like a Virgin Mary looking, you know, saintly creature cradling a, <laughs> a big anti-tank rocket system. But then a week ago, no, two weeks, so week three, you're starting to see artillery. So Ukrainian artillery. So they're using drones to spot Russian units. And instead of picking off one or two tanks here and there, they're able to take out entire command posts and and weapons depots. And this is now a next level of of warfare. And we don't even know where this artillery came from. I mean, my my operating theory is that they had they had kept a lot of their military might in the West in reserve to put to to protect against the, the West Ukraine falling, assuming that the East would fall in and it would become a guerrilla war, right? So they were going to keep their heavy stuff out West. And so my theory is that they're starting to move that forward to the, to the front because now they're feeling secure and they are secure. Then this last weekend, so we're talking last few days ago, now we're seeing videos of, of roadside ambushes, including explosive devices. So we're seeing mines, and we're seeing a, a, um, a tactic where they daisy chain like a whole row of mines, you know. So you, you let a convoy get through to a certain degree. You set them off and boom, four or five t- trucks go up in flames uh, immediately. And you spray machine gun fire to anybody running around and then you, you hightail it out of there. So these are all increasingly sophisticated um, 
ways to resist. And then the last couple of days, now we're seeing Ukraine go on the offensive in, down in the south by uh, Kherson and then up in northwestern uh, Kiev, which as we speak right now, there is some fierce fighting and it looks like Russian troops may be Just- cut off. A major chunk of the Russian invading force in that region may be cut off. Um, so it, it, it's interesting because you have one side that's learning and then you have the other side that is stuck. Now, they're not doing any more stupid airborne drops. So I guess right. they learned that. <laughs> well, you, you know, Russia Russia did change their tactics, I guess, at, I, about a week into the war, not even that long into the war. Russia saw that they weren't going to get the, the quick victory that they expected. And they switched to the tactics that they've used in, in Chechnya and, and, and Georgia and, and Syria, which was bring in the artillery and start reducing the towns and, uh, you know, rack up those civilian casualties until people cry uncle. But the one thing that's made it possible for Ukraine to, to fight back against that and to do all the things you were just talking about, right, to, to be able to move around in daylight in, in more than just a handful of men, to be able to, to do some, some at least uh, medium-sized unit tactics and to be able to, to unleash their own artillery and to be able to go on the offensive. And the thing that's made all of that possible is that Russia doesn't have air superiority. And how is that possible? How can we be this far into a conflict like this and Russia hasn't established air superiority over a country that has a few dozen planes in their air force? Yeah, it was a few dozen planes versus Russia claimed to have about 1,500. And this isn't, yeah. this isn't like troops which are, you know, moving troops into a country is logistically difficult. Planes, they have airfields all around that, that eastern right. I'm sorry, the western edge of, of Russia, of course. And, of course, they took over Belarus, so they had those, those airfields. And so there's no real reason that that should not have been a, a big priority. But even from day one, we, we knew something was up because in, in the United States, in their invasion of, of Iraq, in the first 24 hours, there was 1,800 cruise missiles and um, air sorties over Iraq. And it was almost all command and control. There was an effort to decapitate Saddam Hussein, so they bombed his palace. Um, but beyond that, it was, all, it was all that air defense, right? They right. pulverized missile defenses, airfields, hangars. They didn't want anything challenging them from the air. And they were very effective in doing that. So 1,800, the first day of the first 24 hours of the Russian invasion, I think the number was like 250. So already you're like, wait a second. You know, yep. they think they're at our level, right? Near peer, right? They're, they're, right? In fact, one of the arguments Putin had at the beginning was that the world wasn't taking them seriously as a superpower because the, yeah, US exactly. wanted, the U.S. was reorienting towards China. And he felt slighted and he wanted to show that he was still a superpower in, in all caps and bold and underline. And... Uh, but right from the beginning, it was like, yeah, those those strikes are devastating. And I don't want to minimize the impact on, on the infrastructure and the, the people who are being murdered and their homes are being destroyed and their towns are right. being decimated. I don't militarily those attacks aren't worth shit. And there weren't that many of them. And they didn't even take out Ukraine's small air defense system. They bombed some some runways which right. runways are the easiest thing to, you know, you, you throw some dirt, <laughs> runway's fixed. Patch a pothole, you can fix a runway. It's, a, it's a yeah. hole. It's a hole. Yeah. And um, the fact that you still have a Ukrainian Air Force is unbelievable. The fact that you still have Ukrainian drones 
um, yep. is, is unbelievable. And the fact that you have a major offensive in that northwestern corner of Kiev, just what, 70 kilometers from the Belarus border where there's right. a bunch of airfields. Yeah. And there's, there's no Russian air effort to, to provide air cover for those defenses. It, it, it does not make, it does not compute. So the, UN, the Pentagon said that in their assessment, they think that 40% of Russia's air power is, is knocked out. And that means shot down, damaged, or mechanically inoperable. And you you've, can see that kind of in the numbers that you're coming out of Ukraine. They're actually running fewer and fewer sorties each day. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're launching more missiles, but the, as you said, those missiles are targeted more at civilian targets. They're, really, they're, they're not hitting hospitals and schools and, and, and water plants by accident. That's, that's the target. They, they're, they're using their precision munitions on civilian targets. Yeah, they're terrorists. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's the classic definition of terrorism. Right. Yeah. And you're right. They're not using planes to hit civilian targets. They're actually, what little I've seen of planes that they've used actually have been trying to support, particularly out in that eastern uh, Donbass front. Um, and that, that it's tough terrain to defend because it's wide open um, uh, farmland. And um, so that's where we see more of them. But Pretty much everywhere the f- war is right now, it's pretty easy. I mean, air, air power should have a field day. It's flat. There's, there's no hills. The, 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 the geographic features that are hindering Russians are rivers. It's not like they're, you know, they're hiding in crevices you know, in, in, you know, overlooking some mountain range or something. Right. This, this should be easy territory to, to invade. And in fact, back in my day when I was in the Army, back in 1989, we were defending a part of Europe that was that that's what it was, right? It was the Fulda gap, which is considered like that was the place where Russians were going to invade because it was flat and easy and there was no real geographic uh, hindrance. And in my job, I was in support of a cavalry unit and the cavalry units patrolled the border. And, and then it was a Czechoslovakian border. And my job, my unit's job was to survive 24 hours. That was our job. We were the speed bump to allow mechanized armor to, to assemble to the rear of us. Um, and I don't know, maybe we would have survived 24 hours, but that was, that was, and uh, so even then I think back to how, how scary that, that, that thought was, right. This, this military might, and you read books by yep. Tom Clancy, right. And it was sure. like, these, it was always painted as the, the Russian bear, right. Just incredible military power. Well, and, and the assumption, can't... yeah, the assumption was they were going to come just rolling through with this massive armor. And it's 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 not just tanks like the ones. It's these same tanks. It's the same T-72s and, and T-80s <laughs> yes. that, that, that we were expecting were going to roll into, into Western Europe. Yeah. And um, but I think part of that assumption was that they could do combined arms. And it right. is kind of amazing how they, they can't. So you see... Um, so, for example, there, there is a drone caught a footage of an entire uh, Ukrainian ambush of a column up in northeastern Kiev around Browery. 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 I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, so this column's coming down this, this, this road, and you have a small you know, ambush of anti-tank missiles, and they take out a couple tanks. And then the infantry scatters in the wrong direction, you know, if you're the Americans, what you do is, or probably any competent army in the world, is you face the ambush, right? The tanks all 
point at the ambush. You lay down fire. You force the ambushers to get their heads down. And then you send troops on the flanks around them to surround them and to eliminate the ambush. Russians ran away. So then the ambushers could just shoot them in the back, which they did. And But what was amazing about it, one is they had zero training, zero training on how to handle an ambush. This is basic, like, advanced infantry training stuff, right? This is not advanced training in the U.S. military. They had, they had none of that. But two is that the tanks were just rumbling down unprotected. So historically, a tank is a very vulnerable vehicle. Basically, it's a big-ass gun yep. on wheels to pound on defensive positions. But to get there, it's a very exposed vehicle, right? The, the driver has a slit, this tiny slit to look out, can't look all the way around. So it depends on, on uh, you know, infantry, if you do it right, to walk alongside of it, right? To cover its flanks. A proper military approach in, that, in this ambush case would have had infantry hit that ambush before the armor even got there. And then the armor would have rushed up and started pounding it as well, right? So there would have been a contact. And maybe the, the ambushers would have killed one or two infantrymen, you know, before getting annihilated instead of killing, I counted in that video, at least eight uh, on the street dead, as, you know, and probably more in the vehicles that got destroyed. So it's, that's combined arms, infantry and armor. Right. Russia can't do it. You either see infantry walking by itself unprotected mm -hmm. by armor, or you see armor driving by itself, unprotected by infantry, or you see, um, and you never see a situation where artillery actually is working in concert with armor and infantry in an assault, right? Artillery is just indiscriminate. Like they're, they're not even trying, they don't care, right? It's just, um, this is their tactic they use in World War II, and you know, just historically Russia just throws right. bodies. They, they, yep. they, they, they've had the mass to indiscriminately murder its young without really any sense of conscience. You know, life is cheap historically to Russian leaders. And so that inability, and, and it sort of brings up this historical case two years ago in Syria, where um, Syria is a, is a, it's a, it's a big mess, obviously, right? But you have Russian troops, you have Turkish troops, you have Kurdish troops on, you know, um, you have Americans also in there, uh, Iraqis. I mean, it's like, that's like a world war in its own little pocket of the world. And generally, they, 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 Israelis, generally they keep clear of each other. Like they have different zones, right? The U.S. is there because of ISIS. And Turkey's there because of the Kurds. And, and they all talk to each other to make sure they don't step on each other's toes. But for some reason, a group of Russian mercenaries, uh, the Wagner group decided to attack a, a, um, an outpost that was held by 30 U.S. special forces, 30 against 500. And they, they, it was just a mass rush of, you know, bodies. And when the dust cleared, 200, two to 300 of the Russians were dead and not a single American was injured. And so and that's the part that like nobody even got a purple heart out of this. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and that sort of shows like if you have the discipline and the training and, and, and the Americans, they called in artillery support. They called in air support. Uh, the Russians had none of that. It was it was a turkey shoot in the end. And 
that's the difference between a army that is well organized and well trained and knows how to combine the different elements of an army plus the air force and an army that that just throws bodies at at their problem you know i I think that that's one of the things that a couple of things one we see a lot of losses that Russia is having when we look on Twitter, when we look on, on YouTube. We, you know, there's there's new video every day with lines of Russian tanks that are captured, or destroyed, or damaged. How much of that are there losses as as big as they seem, because they seem tremendous. And and, and then the other thing is everybody seems to be assuming, well, when are the real Russians going to show up? <laughs> right? They've, 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 people keep making this assumption like, well, they must have you know, looked around in the corners and, and dusted these guys together somewhere. But there's got to be a real Russian army out there somewhere. Those guys have, have got to be coming. You know, so so are, is, it, is it as bad as it seems for the Russians? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's as bad. I mean, they've deployed their, the VDV, which is their uh, airborne units. They're the ones that are right now in the process of getting encircled and trapped in Northwest Kiev as we speak. They have their Marines in the South uh, against Mariupol. I guess those guys have been doing okay, except that again, they've had this Mariupol surrounded for four weeks and they still yep. can't, can't take it. There's, there's really nothing else. And so Russia is, um, th- there was a little bit of a kerfuffle because um, it somehow got out in Russia that conscripts were, were, in Ukraine, and that's not allowed by by Russian law. So Putin made a big show of um, people are going to, heads are going to roll, but nothing happened. What they're doing is they're basically putting a gun to these conscripts' heads and saying, sign a contract. Now you're, yeah, now you're exactly. a professional soldier. And they, we have now seen confirmed that those old political commissars of old are back in Ukraine, the ones that will shoot you. And if you turn and run from take the front a, line, take a step back, right? they will shoot you. And so th- these poor soldiers don't, they don't have a say in the matter and, and uh, they can't go back. And my hope is, for example, these troops that are getting surrounded in, in Northwest Kiev is that, that they'll surrender for a bounty. Ukraine's offering a bounty if you surrender and even more money if you, you turn in equipment. And we just had the first, you know, confirmed guy who turned in a tank, got $10,000 or at the end of the war, I get to have Ukrainian citizenship. But remember that these kids, they also have family back home. Exactly. And, and the Russian, you know, FSB, the, the, the new KGB, they're not going to be kind. They're going to, they're going to make, they're going to send uh, messages. Mm-hmm. What happens if any of these people surrender or, or take up the bounty, right? So they're in a, they're in a difficult place where they got to face forward. They're not being used in any way that, that is uh, tactically effective. They're just being thrown into a wood chipper. If they turn around and run, they're going to get shot by their own, by their own Russians, by the political commissars. And so it, it's a really shitty place. And, and there's a guy, uh, his name's uh, Rob Lee on Twitter, who's actually tracking obituaries from Russia and pictures of funerals of uh, these soldiers. And it's mostly VDV. So you wonder where, you know, mm-hmm. how they deployed their best. Yes, because we're actually literally seeing their <laughs> obituaries in Russia. And it just fills me with sadness. Like, I don't, I don't get any joy right. out of seeing those obituaries. What, I mean, what a freaking waste. And maybe they're total a-holes and the world's better off without them. I, I don't know. Uh, but I'd like to think that they're not. 
and the tactic that they're engaged in right now, where where Russia is really causing so many civilian casualties, we I mean, can't want anything more than for this thing to just stop. So it's it at, at this point, I I think there's no question that Russia can't win the war in the greater sense, in the sense that Putin scores some victory that brings him something worth more than than what he's going to lose from all of, not just military losses and the personnel losses, but the, but the sanctions and the economic damage that's being done to Russia. That's going to last for decades. But at this point, can Russia actually even win the war on the ground? No, I mean, that, I think it's, we're, we're pretty sure that that's done. Um, there's a new class of conscripts that are going to be, that are due, because I guess every, every six months, there's a new class of conscripts that turn 18 that have to, that have to register and serve for one year. And there's a new one coming up here in April, but I think it's 80,000. And what are they going to do, throw 80,000 fresh bodies with no training? I mean, it's it, it just, there's no way that you look at that and think that's going to be effective. You have Belarus threatening to invade Western Ukraine. And, and today I saw a number, it was 20 to 30,000. If you thought Russian troops were bad, I mean, right. this, this is like next level. And Western Ukraine, and you've written about this, Mark, you know, there, there's no roads yeah. up there. It's mountainous. Right. I mean... The foothills of the Carpathians, it's wooded, it's mountainous. Yeah, and there's very few highways. They, they're not going to make a lot of, of uh, headway fast. And to go back to what you said earlier, if, if Belarus is going to bring in 15,000 troops, what are we talking about, guys that are actually carrying a gun? Yeah, no, so, it's, it's a joke. 1,000, 2,000? And if supply lines way out there. I mean, I mean yeah. no. And, and, you know, Lukashenko, he's been pressured from day one to send in forces and Putin has even recalled them to Moscow at least once to, and Lukashenko says, yes, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then he doesn't. And Putin doesn't have a lot of leverage right now. That's what we're, I think a lot of people, there may be a lot of instability in the future years in some of these, these um, central Asian countries where Russia has been meddling and uh, has puppet regimes and breakaway regions and stuff like that. So you got that supposedly 15,000 Syrians are going to join the war. None of them have been flown in yet. And exactly. what, again, they're going to throw them into the wood chipper. I mean, these are not, they don't even speak the language. Are they going to be integrated into Russian command? Then they're talking about bringing in troops from some of the breakaway regions, like South Ossetia in Georgia. But the whole breakaway region has 50,000 people in it. I can't. Yeah, what, that's the total population of the place. Total right? population of the place. So what, a couple hundred maybe? And again, right. so... There's not a lot of places for Russia, and it doesn't have allies. This is the difference between the way Russia and China approaches their foreign policy. They don't have alliances. So even in our BS invasion of Iraq, we had Australia, Polish, and British troops fighting alongside. And as the war dragged on, other countries also contributed troops. Even El Salvador at one point had troops in, in Iraq. So there, there's the, the U.S. builds coalitions and, and builds consensus. And that's what it was doing right before Putin invaded, right? Just setting the stage. And that's why he, Biden kept releasing all this intelligence, which seemed very out of character for a nation to do so. Because he was basically saying, Putin, I'm listening to your conversations. I know you're doing it. And that's something that intelligence agencies really do not like you know, broadcast to the world, but it was the way to start getting Europe to. And again, like you said earlier in the show, Europe's like, Oh no, that's, that's just too stupid. He's just, he's just waving a, you know, 
his sword and saber rattling. You know, we'll we'll give him some concessions. We'll we'll sign an agreement that says no NATO troops in Ukraine, and then we'll move on. And that really should have been in a rational world that should have been the end of it. And then people would still think Russia was scary and mighty and had a, <laughs> was a, was a, you know, major military power. And now we, all that's left is they have nukes. That's like, that's all they have to fall back on at this point. You know, at, at, uh, let's talk a little bit about how this thing ends because at the beginning of, of the conflict, you know, days after the invasion started, uh, President Zelensky made it clear that he was willing to accept something like a deal that said uh, Ukraine won't join NATO. Ukraine will take some steps toward demilitarizing, whatever that really means, and that, that Ukraine will uh, uh, recognize in some sense, maybe it's just having a referendum, uh, those, those breakaway regions in the Donbass. But what, what really struck me as odd is that a lot of people in the U.S. weren't willing to take that deal. It, that the idea of that deal seemed to anger people in the United States more than it did people in Ukraine. I mean, it still does. I, I, I wrote a piece on how, yeah, no, Russia's not going to win this thing, but neither is Ukraine. If yeah. the definition of victory is that Ukraine has territorial integrity, it wins back Crimea and the separatist Donbas region. If that's their definition of uh, a victory, it's not going to happen. They just do not have the offensive military capability to push Russia off Crimea. Uh, and do they really want to turn around and hit the, the trenches? I mean, right now, separatists in Donbass can't get through the trenches, Ukrainian trenches on that front line. Right. Now, does Ukraine want to hit the trenches on the Donbass side of that line? And uh, it would, it would, the cost would be horrific in lives, not to mention the economic damage of an, a continuing war, the inability to plant their, seed, you know, plant their fields and, and rebuild and, and all those things. And people really get angry because, of course, we want justice. We're seeing war crimes carried out on a minute-by-minute -minute basis in Ukraine, right. and it's overwhelming, and you want somebody to pay for it. And the thought that Russia can just walk out and with you know, Crimea, like actually having won something out of this thing, much less not being punished, is so much to bear. I just want to remind people that it's really easy to be outraged when you're not the one that has bombs falling over your head, right? Exactly. Over here, yeah, keep fight on, Ukraine. Well, <laughs> okay, it's easy to tell other people to die and to lose their family members and their fathers and mothers and children and babies to, to the ravages of war. So there, there is no scenario that I see uh, realistic scenario where Crimea ends up in Ukraine's hands. And the only realistic scenario I see where Donbas ends up in Ukrainian hands is that they're given their autonomy and 20 years on the road, they pull in East Germany and say like, yeah, I want to be with <laughs> Ukraine is looking a lot better now that it's Westernized as opposed to this basket case that is Russia over here. And so, yeah, let's, let's, let's reunify. You know, people tend to forget that <clears throat> before all of this started at, at, at Ukraine's beginnings after the end of the Soviet Union, there, there was a referendum that was held, you know, oblast by oblast. Each one of these places, including Crimea, voted to be part of Ukraine, voted to, to look west instead of east. So at, Crimea was the smallest margin of victory yeah. for let's be part of Ukraine, not part of Russia. But but Donba in the Donbass, they, they passed in both Donetsk and Luhansk 
it passed by a pretty good margin. So, so yeah, let's ha- let's have a referendum. Let's just repeat that vote, and then Russia can leave. Yeah, um, it's not going to be enough for Putin. Though. And this is the this is the difficult part. Like, what what does what does it take for Putin to walk out? I mean, there was literally a proposal. I'm not even making this up. There's a proposal where denazification meant changing the name of some street signs. Yeah. Because they're named after some partisan Ukrainian who fought against the Soviets with the Nazi side. Okay, change those street signs. That's worth 10,000 of your dead to change a couple of street signs. Okay, yeah. okay. So, uh, but Mark, um, you know, we were talking earlier before the show and we're, gonna, we're, 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 um, we're almost out of time here. So I'm going to retake the controls uh, range from you. Take it away. Thanks so, thanks so much for, for, for driving for a while. But one thing that... that uh, our staff was sort of talking about is just how, um, how the way we're covering this. It's almost twenty-four hour coverage, right? And and you're you're in east you're in East Coast time, right? You're in Missouri. I'm, I'm in Central time. Oh, you're in Central. Central. I'm in Pacific time in California. And uh, Ukraine is nine hours ahead of me. So right now it's it's nighttime, and you know my my sleep has been suffering something fierce and you were saying that you know it's kind of hard for you too because i want to be up till about one in the morning because that's 10 o'clock ukraine time that gives everybody in ukraine time to get up and start writing about all the attacks overnight all the damage all the you know russian war crimes overnight and for some reason i can't go to sleep until i have that information and then i think well at least i'll sleep in a little later but then i'm up like 6 30 you know because I need to see if did somebody finally take out Putin? <laughs> did Lukashenko get taken out? Are there any good news that I can hang my head on? And uh, and it grinds. And not to say oh, we're suffering because because oh, no. clearly you know it's it's nothing like um, like what's happening in Ukraine. But um, it's it's becoming all consuming. Yes, I, I said earlier. I think I think in one way this is the easiest war coverage ever, right? Because we're not there. We're not boots on the ground. We're not not even the reporters, and the journalists. That have a couple of journalists have, have gone missing today. One journalist was uh, yeah. was kidnapped by Russian forces and, and and given back only after she was persuaded to make a propaganda video for them. Persuaded, I'm sure, with a gun to her head. <laughs> right. But but um, you know. But on the other hand, like you said, it, it just goes on and on and on because. I think that we had some expectations at first that things were going to kind of happen very quickly. And now they've kind of fallen into this rhythm. So you watch at night because you're, I've, I've got those screens up and whoever started these screens that have like uh, a four way split. Here's Kiev over here. Here's a, here's a scene from Kharkiv over here. Here's the scene from Maripol down here. Here's, here's Lviv up in this corner, right? If, if those things were up there a month ago, I bet they were getting what two views. Who's going to watch random street scenes in Ukraine. But now, you know, you look there at, at three in the morning and there's 8,000 people just staring at a street in Kiev. And the other night I, I left it on and after I did go to bed and at three in the morning, the air raid siren goes off. So echoes through my house the, because they're having <laughs> Your an air wife raid must love Kiev. that. <laughs> yeah, she was not thrilled. But but I but I find myself you know you you watch and there you see every little flash here's an explosion you know we we had we watched real time streaming as Russian forces conducted conducted an artillery attack on a nuclear power plant boy you know there was a stressful evening just just watching that was difficult so we we um we were I was saying that uh, someday hopefully in a few years 
this war will be history. Ukraine will be rebuilding and rebuilt. And I'm going to go. I'm going to visit. And I'm going to go to all these places where all these incredible heroes right. uh, stood uh, yeah. and fought. And you said you wanted to do the same thing. So I'm just, let's, oh, let's do yeah. it together. Let's, yeah. let's, <laughs> let's head out I, there. I, I want to see that bridge in Kyrgyzstan that, that, that Ukraine took and retook and retook in the opening days of, of the war, right? And I want to see all of those suburbs that have suffered so horribly up there near Kiev, man, to, to go to Irpin and Buka and, and to the other little towns around in that arc on the northwest that, that uh, Russia has taken, Ukraine has taken back, Russia has come back in again. You know, those guys, it's been so hard on them. But but it feels like my hometown now, in a sense, right? You oh watch it every day. Yeah. Who knew yeah. that I would know these towns existed? I mean, towns of 20,000 that I'm obsessively uh, yeah, I, and, and, and following on Twitter and so on. And, and we can maybe even do a whole podcast series on it, going back to reliving, um, you know, on the ground what things look like. And, yeah places where these incredible battles were won and lost and so many people have died. So Mark, really appreciate you joining me today and, and having this conversation. This was, this was uh, hopefully really illuminating and informative for people. Uh, so truly, truly appreciate uh, your help on this and also oh, in the coverage with Daily Coast. Yeah. Highly we'll, encouraged. We'll, we'll go right back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to log off here and back to Twitter because <laughs> something happened in the last hour and I need to That's know what right. exactly it was, even though everybody's sleeping. In, in Ukraine right now. The war doesn't right. sleep. I'd like to thank uh, everybody that helps and supports this, this podcast behind the scenes. Walter, who, uh, who is our producer, and Dorothy and Kara, who help do promotion and write-ups of the show and transcripts. And uh, I'd really, really, really appreciate and love all of you who watch the show and who tune in weekly. Thank you so much for being part of this. Uh, thank you for being fellow travelers in this battle for our democracy. Yeah, we're talking about Ukrainian democracy, but this November we have to really focus on American democracy. So much is on the line, including a Republican Party that is <laughs> big chunks of it are supporting Putin in this thing, yeah. including Donald Trump. So thank you all so much for being fellow travelers in that fight. Look forward to uh, engaging in this battle for existential battle for our democracy this November. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. Catch you all next week. Carrie will be back. So excited to, to have her back on the show. So thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at DailyCoast.com or on Twitter at DailyCoast. See you next week.